Um, when you live in Las Vegas, um, there are four essential items. Like now there are three in Georgia, right? You've got your, you know, your wallet, your, your cell phone, and your keys. Well, there's a fourth in Las Vegas. It's your sunglasses, okay? Vegas is smoking hot all the time. The first summer I was there was uh, beyond hot. It was, you could cook eggs on the sidewalk. It was really hot. And so um, I made the mistake one day, shortly after Megan and I had gotten married, of, of uh, taking her car and forgetting my sunglasses. And as I was uh, driving, I was getting desperate. And so I put her little girly sunglasses on as I'm driving. And uh, <laughs> the problem was I could see less with the sunglasses on than I could with them off. Because it, I kid you not, it looked like somebody had taken a set of car key, taken a set of car keys to their sunglasses, and just scraped them on them for about 20 minutes. And so I'm driving these things, and, and I just can't see anything, so I rip them off. And I get back home, and I'm like, hey, babe, like, do you know that your sunglasses are really, really scratched up? Like, they are awful. And she goes, I didn't even notice it. I said, put mine on. She's like, oh, man, look at the difference, right? The lenses that you're wearing matter, church. What you are looking through matters. The lens that we interpret the world through matters. My question and what I want to explore today is what lenses do you have on as we watch the world burn down around us to some degree? And you really got to look no further than your own heart to discover that. Because when we've got gospel lenses on, it's possible to have peace in our hearts even when chaos surrounds us in the world. Right now, what we're experiencing uh, in our country is the absence of shalom. Shalom is the Bible's word for peace. It's, it's better than the world's word for peace because it's holistic. It, 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 it has this idea of a holistic flourishing not just the absence of conflict, because you can actually have the absence of conflict and not have the type of peace that God's word promises us. The, the actual presence of shalom is found in the person and work of Jesus. This is why the prophecy about Jesus when, when he was to be born was that he would be the prince of peace, right? Yeah, the prince of peace is what he is. That Ephesians chapter 2 says that he is our peace, that in and of himself he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility and created in, in the place of two one new man. He is our peace. And, and God's word says that as we bring our anxieties to him, our fears, which, are, which show us that we don't have peace in our hearts, as we bring those to him, something beautiful happens. The peace of God, Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding is like a, it's, it's, a, it's an offensive weapon for us. It guards our hearts from being deceived and it guards our minds. So if the first place the kingdom of God advances is in the hearts of his people, this means that the biggest evidence of peace is found in the contentment and joy of Christians, not in the absence of conflict in the world. Are you tracking with me? The greatest indicator that we've got God's peace is what's going on inside of us, not, going on, not what's going on outside of us. That, that's the greatest indicator. Because let me remind you of what Jesus promised us. Here's what, here's what uh, John chapter 14, verse 27 says. He says, peace I leave with you. Okay, Jesus, that's great. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33 goes on to say this. This wonderful promise. In this world, you will have trouble. Thanks, Jesus, right? It's, it's a promise. You can take it to the bank and cash the check. In this world, you will have trouble. If you don't have trouble, you're not living in this world, right? To live in this world is to have trouble, is what Jesus says. But take heart, because I have overcome the world, is what Jesus says. So the evidence of shalom cannot be, uh, cannot be the absence of conflict. That can't be what Jesus is talking about, because he says we're going to have trouble in this world. So to try to reduce, well, let me just say this. The problems that we think we have in this world only scratch the surface of what the real problem is. I've got really, really bad news for you. The problem is much bigger than the world thinks that it is. We're just scratching the surface of what's going on. So to try to reduce the cosmic conflict between God and his fallen angels that the devil himself leads to a quiet and peaceful world is to confuse the problem and to confuse the solution that God has given for this massive conflict. So when we, when we look around and we see trouble in the world, it's not proof that God's not with us. What would be proof that God's not with us is when Christians are in the midst of trouble and don't have peace in their hearts. That's the, that's the better indicator of what's going on. Because this, so to confuse it is to look for a solution that Jesus never promised us. We're going to have trouble until he returns, he says. Because this leaves us searching for a kingdom that is primarily evidenced in, in something Jesus never promised us. Let me read Ephesians 6 for you, just to remind you, just kind of set the stage for where we're going today. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Did you hear that? Let me say it one more time. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over this trouble that we are experiencing that Jesus promised us, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what's happening in our world is just a, it's a microcosm of the greater conflict that exists. And Jesus, praise God, came to handle that. That's what Jesus came for. So here's our big idea of where we're going today, church, that when the gospel is prioritized, the church has this byproduct of peace and unity. When God's news, his good news, is the news that we prioritize, the church has peace and unity. So I just got two points for you, a typical bad news, good news sermon, all right? First is the bad news, and it's what we experience, what, what I've experienced, certainly. Despair comes when we interpret the gospel through the world's lenses, okay? So go back to the sunglasses, right? We're going to be uh, getting into 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, if you want to go ahead and get there. And I, I have a confession to make. <clears throat> I woke up last Thursday morning um, in a, just a sheer panic attack, unlike anything I have ever had in my life before. Um, I had, like many of you, uh, made the mistake of watching the news right before I went to bed. Um, I was also recovering from the effects of, the, of COVID, and uh, I was just a tad anxious overall, because at this point I'd heard, okay, you could lose your taste and smell, but that, that hasn't happened to me yet. And so I have this nightmare, right? 
because I'm anxious and I can't sleep and I have this nightmare. And in this dream that I have, um, I, lose, I lose my memory. So the evidence of that was I couldn't remember my kids' names. Secondly, um, I, I lost all knowledge of God's word. So I, I, was literally, I had a dream, I was literally standing on the stage and someone introduced me and said, now Pastor Ryan's gonna preach the gospel for us. And I couldn't remember what it was. This is like a preacher's greatest nightmare, right? And then lastly, I, I dreamed that I couldn't taste or smell anything, that the virus was just dominating my life, that I was never gonna be the same again. And so I woke up and it just so happened that I couldn't taste or smell anything anymore. And so I run to the kitchen, I grab an apple and there's a bigger metaphor there, okay? And I take a big bite out of it. And the apple doesn't have any taste. And so immediately my mind starts racing. All of these things are true that I've just dreamed about, right? And so I go over and Megan really appreciated this, I'm sure. And I shake her and wake her up. I'm like, you gotta help me, I am freaking out. And she started praying for me like she does. And uh, I had just determined that I'd had enough of the night and decided to go ahead and get up. <laughs> that was a long day. But what I did after that is I went down to my office and I just put my nose in God's word. And it took about three hours to straighten my heart out. Is that familiar to anybody else? You just feel all out of whack. You feel anxious. You feel troubled. Feel like that. You see, our hearts get all out of whack when we don't start by seeing the world's news through the good news. Now, the, the church has always had this temptation to try to make the world's news the good news. And here's what I know Jesus said that we should pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But he never said that the earth would finally and fully look like heaven while we live in it, did he? He never said that. He said we'd have trouble. So we're praying for his kingdom to be advanced, but the primary dominion of his kingdom advancing is inside of you. Now, sure, we get to experience the effects of that from time to time in the world. But predominantly what God wants to do is inside of us. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And this is, a, this is the last, what's believed to be the last letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament, and he's writing to his young disciple, Timothy, who he calls his, his child in the faith, his son in the faith. And this is the last chapter of what he writes to him. So this is like the, the farewell. It's like, Timothy, my son, like this is deathbed letter here. Here's what he says to him. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. So your, your circumstances, Timothy, do not determine your mission. What's happening in the world doesn't determine what you're going to do. You've got to be ready even when you think you don't need to be ready. And he says this, to preach the word, and that is what it, be ready in season and out of season, and he, he says three things to him that all, if you notice, all have to do with God's word. That God's word is supposed to be reproving the church. It's supposed to be rebuking the church and exhorting the church. Those are kind of, they're all kind of a little bit offensive, right? That God's word is kind of cleaning house in the impurities of our heart. That's, that's what God's word does. It's a sword. It's a weapon for us that cleanses us. So he encourages him to do this with complete patience and teaching. 
And then he says, listen, there's going to be this tendency in the church for this drift to happen. Now, this is not, he's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. And he says, here's, here's the temptation. And, and I would uh, put before you that I think this is the temptation of every Christian, okay? Not, not just those guys way out there that are, that are way off the deep end, but every Christian. The, the temptation is this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, he says, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and, and thus wander off into myths. As, you, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. So as you think about this passage right here, I want you to consider where it is that your ears are itching this morning. Where is it in your life that you would be more content to hear a strategy, a solution, a plan that doesn't involve the gospel? Where is it that the world's news could be better to you than the good news this morning? Uh, because, you know, as I, as I, as I woke up on thir last Thursday morning in that panic, what I had done is I'd went to sleep compiling a narrative that was interpreting, interpreting rather, my life. And someone other than Jesus was the narrator of that. Someone other than Jesus was. And it produced the farthest thing from the fruit of the gospel, which is peace in my heart. When the gospel is in front and center church, here's what starts happening. We start to experience despair. We start to experience fear. And we start to panic. And I'm willing to bet if you've been alive, which you all have been in the last, I don't know, three months, you've experienced at least the edges of despair. You've hit at the edges of it, no matter who you are. And, and, and so what, what, what Paul says here is that the world's, the world's lenses, what he's saying is the world's lenses basically put the gospel at the footnote instead of front and center, the main thing. Because he says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So that word endure, I was like, okay, what does this mean? Is he, is he saying that like, you know, people are just going to want you to entertain them. Um, people are, you know, they're not going to be able to sit through a sermon. They're going to fall asleep. That would never happen here. We know that. Um, what is he talking about when he says endure? It actually, it's this word, anicho, if you're interested, you can look it up. But it actually means, it actually has to do with weight bearing, not endurance. So, so when you think about sound teaching, he's saying sound teaching is heavy. It's heavy duty. It's, 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 it's robust. It's not complex. Don't confuse it with that because even a child can understand it, but it's dense. It's actually pretty simple. It's not eloquent, as Paul would say, but it's weighty. It says that our biggest problem is cosmic, not earthly, and that really our problem is much bigger than we think that it is. That I've sinned against the holy God and I deserve for his wrath to be poured out of my life every single day. And that to be convinced that anything else is the biggest problem in the world is to believe a lie. Because it's going to drive you from believing the solution to the biggest problem in the world, which is Christ Jesus himself. Life, death, burial, resurrection for God's children. But, but when our ears are itching... We'd rather focus on other things. We'd rather build our own narrative and maneuver our own way through life. 
And these can even be good pursuits. It starts by just kind of reading something that's interesting. And before you know it, you're down a whole rabbit trail and you haven't read the Bible in weeks. It happens so quickly to Christians. I was confessing uh, to a pastor friend of mine on Monday uh, this reality. I I said this. I said, I feel like, here's here's the pressure I feel. And I'm not alone in this. I feel like I have to be an expert in world history, social movements, political motives, and other world issues to be a faithful pastor today. And then even if I was, the moment that I'm opening my mouth, the church is split in half. I just said, I feel like, Andrew, I can't win. I feel like I don't have what it takes. And he said, bro, I know what you're talking about. I feel the same thing. And then I talk to Christians. I talk to people in our church. They feel the same way. And you know what? It's just exhausting, isn't it? But the beauty is this. God never expects that from me or for you. He never expected us to have all of the answers to all of the problems like Kendall was saying. His expectation is to have the answer to one problem. And that's what are we gonna do about our sin? 1 Timothy 3, which in Titus 1, which is where the qualifications of an elder or deacon are, it does not include a political science world history or sociological adeptness requirement. Praise God, right? (laughs) That was Brandon, our assistant pastor. Amen, brother. Um, And even if you could dodge every landmine imaginable through sheer fortitude and knowledge and willpower, even if we could, and we never mentioned the name of Jesus Christ and what he's done, it would be all for nothing. That's the crazy thing about it. At this season... In my life, for every one look at the news, I got to take 10 looks at the good news, all right? That's just the reality of where my heart is. Because my, my, my fleshly ears itch. And you know how I know that? Because sometimes I just get tired of the gospel. I just, I hear it and it doesn't do anything for me. You ever been there? You, ever, you, you hear about what Jesus did and you're like, yeah, or you sing about what Jesus did and, and you, you know, you'd rather be watching a football game or something. And, and, and the, the problem, the, the, the thing we think in those moments is that there's something wrong with the good news. But really there's something wrong with me, that I have a rebellious heart that doesn't want to hear the gospel, that doesn't think Jesus is king. The problem is with, is with us, not the good news. So the question I want you to consider when we think about these itching ears, these looking at the, the, the gospel, the, the gospel truth through worldly lenses when it doesn't seem like good news, the question I want you to ask yourself to kind of to apply this is this. What news am I stockpiling in my heart and accumulating in my heart this week? What is it that I've been building a library and a repertoire of up in my heart? What news can I not wait to share with my coworker? What news am I trying to make the good news? But, as I told you, that's the bad news. Good news is this, is that there is peace and unity in interpreting the world through gospel lenses. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, felt this pressure to have all the answers when he was writing to this really broken church in Corinth. He he felt the pressure 
to put all the band-aids on all the problems. And he does give them some really practical things in the books of First and Second Corinthians. But how First Corinthians starts and ends was with the simple gospel message. L- listen to Second Corinthians, uh, sorry, First Corinthians chapter two, verses one through five. He says, "When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I, did, I didn't nuance it much." He said, "I wasn't. I didn't add a bunch of stuff to it." For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. So that, and this is the key, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. It was intentional for Paul. That pressure that you feel right now to have all the answers and to say the right things and to provide the right solutions, Paul felt it too. It's real. But that pressure leads us to what? Fear and weakness, doesn't it? Because what we want is a quick fix, but there are no quick fixes when it comes to our problem of sin. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think about that. What if you decided this week to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? What would would that look like for you? Would you you have anything to say? To know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That was the priority for Paul because it was the only thing that could put the church back together. Church is the only thing that could put the church back together today too. Amen? It's, it's the only thing. He, he says that he's saying this. He said, I'm not going to let you think for one second that you can know anything other than Jesus and him crucified and feel relief from the struggle and agonizing pain that you feel in your heart. I'm not going to let you think it for a second. I'm not going to let you take the bait, Corinthians. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1.17. He, he, he talks about the dangers of trying to fill our, fill our hearts with things other than the good news. There's this debate going on in the church. Um, you know, they're arguing over who's the best pastor to follow on Twitter, Paul or pa- Apollos. You know, I'm, I'm joking, y'all wake. And um, they, are, they are arguing about who baptized them, but there's division, that's the point. He says this, For Christ didn't send me to baptize or to enter into your division here, but to preach the gospel. And and the reason is this, not with words of eloquent wisdom, because what happens when you try to add to the gospel is you empty the cross of its power. So the things that we seek to to, to solve the, the problems that we have that are not the gospel are actually emptying the power of the gospel. They're diluting it. Have you ever had like, you ever let a drink sit out too long and the ice kind of melts in it and you drink it and you're like, that's disgusting. That tastes nothing like Coke Zero, right? And yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's happening when we try to seek things and bolt them onto the gospels, we dilute the power. We empty the cross of its power is what he's saying. He's saying that when our ears itch over the struggle of life in this world, and we scratch them with anything other than Christ and him crucified, that's what the gospel is, that we, that we actually empty it of its power. Now, <clears throat> we reduce the problems we experience to things that can be solved with something other than God's sacrifice of his perfect and beloved son. 
And you may be thinking, come on, pastor, we just gonna sit around and sing Jesus loves me? Is that the solution? I don't know, maybe. No, what I'm saying is that if we get tired of the gospel, there's something wrong with us. And the way that we know that we're getting tired of the gospel is we start assuming it and thinking that this political party or that social issue is the gospel, right? But the, Paul said what the gospel is. It's the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When's the last time you sat in that? When's the last time you shared that with someone? Because that's the only thing that's gonna give us peace. Are we more eager this morning to hear a 10-step plan on how to make our country a better and more unified place or to hear Jesus Christ boldly proclaimed? That's a question to ask us because here's here's what Paul says happens whenever we hear the gospel, when the gospel is proclaimed with our lives, what Jesus actually did. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. In other words, if we're in Christ, we're gonna win. It might not feel like we're winning, but we're gonna win. And through us, what happens through the church when we're standing in the gospel spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So think about your your life as a fragrance. What would it smell like? He says for verse 15, we are the aroma, we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? The message of the gospel, he's saying, is a message of life through death. It's a message that if you want to live, you have to die. Now, the message of this world is this. Let's figure out how not to die so that we can live. The message of the gospel is go ahead and die so that you can actually live. This is what the gospel does. It, it, it humbles us. It crushes us to the point that we smell like death. Now, I can't smell much right now, not Chick-fil-A, imagine that, right? Or, you know, I have four kids, a clogged toilet, you know? That happens like every day. So that's the good news. But what, what, what God's word teaches us is that the church, that Christians, when they come to faith, they smell like death before they smell like life. That we don't get to live without death because Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily. Cross is an instrument of death, isn't it? So if you got, I had a youth group kid uh, back in the day who was so excited. He, he had this, um, this uh, I think it was a cross tattoo is what it was. He was a youth group kid. And, and I was like, oh, that's great. You have a, a, an instrument of torture tattooed on your arm. That's great. And he was like, what? <laughs> um, anyway, I, he's a good friend. But um, we, we see that there's actually glory in death though, church. There is glory in death to self and there is new life. There's glory in surrender. Now, I may be and you may be named a fool for not knowing everything that's going on in the world today. Maybe not knowing the the issues that we are experiencing inside and out. But if there's one thing that I wanna know and I wanna know with all my heart and I wanna know it inside and out is the rock solid gospel of Jesus. That's the only thing you gotta know, church. The world may tell you you gotta know a lot of other stuff. That's the one thing 
You gotta know. That's the one thing that'll channel everything that's chaotic inside of you and give you peace. Now, the gospel, the fragrance of death here, you know, when, when, you, th- when you think about your life, where is it that the Lord is calling you to die to self a little bit more, to surrender a bit more? Because what we see in the Bible is that the cross isn't something that's just done for you. It's something that's done to you. This is why Paul writes this in Galatians chapter two. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel is this, is that you are so bad that God had to die for you. You're that bad. Your problem's worse than you think it is. Your sins, you know, they're, they're more than you think they are. But the beautiful news is, is that God was glad to send his son for you. And the more that we preach that to ourselves and we speak that to one another, the more we get the promises of God that we have peace in our heart that guards our heart and our mind. I wanna challenge you this week to preach the gospel to yourself every morning before you do anything else. I I got this friend in my discipleship group that he does this every day. And And on a side note, it should give us a little bit of pause if we cannot preach the gospel to ourselves in the morning and our day go okay, right? It should give us a little bit of pause there. I got this friend in my, in my group and we were sharing our stories on our discipleship, our discipleship retreat. You know, we're sharing our testimonies, how Jesus had changed us and a little bit about our family and our upbringing. And um, this guy, he did something different. He's like, hey guys, the best way I know to, to, to tell you about me is to just let you sit in on my quiet time this morning with me. So literally he walked us through what he does for his quiet time. It was, it was different, but it was beautiful. He says, man, I start with, and this is, a, this is a template for you to preach the gospel to yourself if you'd like it. He says, I start with Psalm 51. You know, against you and you only have I sinned. God, I, I've sinned against other people, but I've definitely sinned against you. And because of that, that's separated me from you forever. Forgive me and make me into this man like David is that has a pure heart and a righteous spirit. And then he just... He just started to write down with his notepad all of the sins that were possible. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. He says, you know, uh, I'm a wretch. I'm a log-eyed hypocrite. I like that one. Uh, I'm judgmental. I'm lustful. I'm selfish. God, there is no sin that I'm not capable of committing today. Think about that. Do you believe that about yourself? You won't need Jesus if you don't. And he goes on to say, but, all of those things are true, but Ephesians 2 says that salvation is a free gift. If I believe in you by faith, then I'm a candidate for hope now. But but God loves me. Doesn't he have to, he can't let my sin go unpunished. And then he begins to walk through Jesus's life. He says, Jesus was physically born into a broken world. There was chaos from the beginning. This chaos is nothing new to us today. Jesus was, was baptized, that the Holy Spirit came down upon him and, and God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended on him. He, he begins to, to think about, Bruce, my friend does, he begins to think about how, how the gospel is good news to him that, that because of what Jesus has done, now I'm a beloved son, I'm a beloved daughter in who God is well pleased. And not only that, 
I can't do one bit of ministry unless the Spirit brings me to life. I can't advance the kingdom an inch without the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he goes on to say, Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Man, God's well pleased with me. And then he goes through the miracles. I, I'm Several miracles anyway. He says, I'm the man that was lowered down to Jesus in Mark 2. I was unable to come to him on my own. But because I was brought to him, I was carried to him. Now the father says, rise, take up your mat and walk. Now I can walk in him. He, like the woman that he had compassion on in the crowd, he sees me and he knows me and he loves me. Now he lived perfectly and loved perfectly, yet the people he lived for beat him to death and crucified him. And then this, this is really what gripped me. He said, I would be the one beating him with a stick, nailing the nails in his hands. That would be me. I know what's possible in me. Jesus was really dead, just like I deserve to be. He had to become sin who knew no sin. And he's even forgiven me when I didn't know what I was doing. It is finished, Jesus said. And after three days, Jesus, he rose from the dead. And he says, I think about that stone being rolled away. And I think about those, those grave clothes in the tomb that the gospels talk about. He says, those are, those are my grave clothes. That's what I deserve. But now, because he's risen from the dead, and I believe that he did that for me, I can walk in the newness of life. I can put on the new man. And then he prays, and he starts his day. Imagine if you did that every day this week. How do you think your week would go? Let's pray together. Father, we need the gospel, Lord. We need it on repeat like our favorite song. And Father, when our hearts don't think it's good news, we need it even more. Father, I pray that New City Church would be a people that never tire of hearing about the good news of Christ. Lord, we never move beyond it because the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and growing in the world and in us. Lord, to, 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 uh, to, to say that we no longer need the gospel it's to say that we no longer need to grow. Lord, we need to grow. We want to grow in you. And so, Lord, I pray that your word today would penetrate our hearts. And, Father, that it would give us the gift of peace, that it would give us the gift of joy as we understand that as when we start with the good news of Christ, that everything else in our lives finds its rightful place. And we need that now more than ever. We pray this in your son's name that you gave for our sins. Jesus, amen.